Welcome back to Sharing Air, the podcast that reflects on our health and our humanity in the face of isolation, competing information, and fears that are entirely understandable. We are having talks about relationships. Uh, and it's what better way to do that? Fear, no matter what, right? But we could be talking about relationships without there being COVID, and we could both be That's terrified. right. This is one of the many times when uh, a situation that has been foisted upon us is actually shedding some light on things that had maybe not been noticed as much as they should have been. So it's an actual opportunity, I think. Um, I'm Andy Vasco. I am Associate Provost and Director of our Transdisciplinary Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University, and I'm joined by my other co-host. And I'm Laurieann Farrell, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at CGU. So last week, Laurieann, we had talked about translation, and our guest was Professor Tammy Schneider uh, from the Department of Religion. And we talked about Passover policy and poetry and other alliterations. And uh, Passover is over now. We are, we are on to <laughs> we the next holiday. Over, that's right. Ramadan is on its way if it hasn't already started. Um, yeah, that was a so really... we're, we're in the season. Yep, that was a really interesting show. Um, sorry to interrupt, but that's you know that's what I do. Um, it was an extraordinary show, I think, because it went in places we didn't expect it to do, which I think is what is the operating mode for things like religious ritual right now. I mean, without people in the room together, how one actually you know performs anything, whether that be a seder or an Easter, uh, you know, an Easter broadcast from a church or an Easter service from a church, and then even the fact that we're doing this. Uh, where we can't see each other and we're actually still managing to share space without sharing air is kind of interesting to me. Um, I watched a, I watched a church service on Sunday. A dear friend of mine is running a big church in Pomona and there was um, the sense of him just standing alone in a big empty room uh, saying all the things that you normally say on days that you expect to hear the kinds of words that are comforting and are exactly um, and the same ones you've heard year after year after year. Um, this is this 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 night is really not like any other night, um, and hopefully it won't even be like the nights that we say that in next year. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about um, working with Tammy was to think about her as a translator, because in many ways I think there, it was so informative for me to hear from you that. That what the way I think about translation, um, as a person who reads poetry, as a person who actually has to translate Latin from the 16th century, um, that those tasks that we were thinking about in terms of you know finding the space between the original meaning and the next meaning, take on a whole new meaning when we're talking about it in terms of medicine and science and policy, and and you were so and yet, yeah help, helpful with that, Andy. I mean, I just hadn't ever thought about using that word in in so many different guises. Yeah, just to remind everyone, translation has so many different contexts, and yet when you trace it back, it actually is applicable from, if you're looking at, at translating Aramaic or Biblical Hebrew, in a very similar way as it is to understanding and translating basic science data and how it relates to policy. And where, where there are differences, there, there are interpretations that are injected along the way. And that's a conversation, and I think something we're going to revisit over and over again, is that, look, there's, there's places where there's actual data, there's actual information, but how we turn that into knowledge, how we turn that into action, policy, even wisdom, uh, that that requires a lot of, of interpretation and uh, integration and collaboration and a, and a lot of things that end with the ushan uh, suffix to you know to, to 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 really make it a process that that never stops and and I, I hope none of us ever stop doing that I think that's such an important thing it's a part of where our independence where our autonomy are that that allows us to make informed decisions for ourselves that aren't dependent on someone else making it for them. I think it's really easy to align yourself with a champion and have them do it for you. And then you don't, you stop thinking. Uh, and we don't all want to be cavalier. That is a danger, but you want to be informed and understanding the difference between being, uh, being this kind of cavalier person and one who is making the best decisions for themselves and their loved ones while using all of the other considerations and people and data that are out there. I think that's the true art of, of living in, and living in COVID. I think that that's, that's really uh, one the, of the, the most of poignant COVID. moments. 
Cavalier like coat is I mean, cavalier. That's a, that's actually that's actually a word that we don't you know that like there are words in this world that I think we don't use nearly enough. And cavalier is one of my favorite ones. Like you know, it, it's fun to tell somebody that they're being cavalier about something. You know, it, but it has its you know it has its sense in a you know it, it it carries with that word carries with it a whiff of the notion of a of a kind of self importance or a kind of authority mm-hmm. that may or may not be earned. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's where that's where translation gets really tricky for us because how we earn that trust, you know, how we earn the how we earn enough trust to hear a person say a word that we may in, be interpreting differently or an idea that we may not be able to bring the same context to, you know, how much space do we give them uh, to allow us to, to um, in some sense, access that trust we were going to have in them? I mean, think about. Um, Think about any kind of situation that's fraught, like the one we're in right now, um, and any, you know, how hard it is, you know, a person like me, it's really hard for me to let people finish their sentences. That's true of me in the best of times. In the worst of times, the minute you get to this kind of, you know, like a scary place in what you want to say, I want to bump in and say, but I don't get what you're saying, or I don't think that can be true, or, or other useless things like that, you know, would, again, a specialty. But I think it's, you know, like, how does one take things seriously enough without scaring themselves to death or without being dismissive, you know, which is my definition of cavalier. When I think a person's being cavalier with me, they're not, they're not allowing me to, uh, to address them with the seriousness that I feel like the situation or the, the circumstances we're in, you know, sort of, um, uh, merit. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, and right now I think I it's just it- hard to listen. <laughs> I use it in a much simpler way, actually. It was it was in every failed relationship when I was telling someone or when I was dating them that they were acting in a way that was very cavalier and not thinking of me. So I have a very particular context in which I use that word that has nothing that. to do with with um the uh the the the, the really profound way that you're explaining this, Laureate. And no, I, I and love the way that you just to do with that. No, it has everything to do with that. I mean that's you know, relationships are where we test out the seriousness of life. My God, you know, no, do not yeah, tell your yeah. story. So or, I, I always know. use it. I always use it as a way to to prompt a conversation and be like, "You're being cavalier," and then that means they have to ask why. It's not, you can't say you're being a jerk. You can't say you know you, you're you're being uh, mean or like you say you're being cavalier, and then it requires a conversation to explain what exactly that means. So I I, I always thought of this as okay, this is going to be one of those kinds of discussions. Well, you know, I mean, and you're talking to somebody who's actual, you know, whose primary use of the term cavalier um, would that I were in situations where I kept, could actually have these arguments with people. But um, is, you know, I actually work on one part of me actually works on the context of 17th century England and the English Civil Wars, in which it's the, you know, actually it's, it's characterized as the war between the roundheads, who are the Puritans, and the cavaliers, who are the aristocrats. So, um so there you go. Who even knew we would get to this place? And if we were looking at each other right now, we were talking, you'd probably be waving at me like, shut up. Um, no, I have to imagine you in my head, Lorianne. That's the fun of this. Um, I'm imagining <laughs> well, you in- you It's a good thing you can't see me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of bundled up today. It's much cooler today. It's than, freezing. Than it's freezing. It's, it's horrible. This is like, I want my money back from the state of California. I need sunshine now. <laughs> and they promised this to me. I want to say, that, so speaking of, I mean, this is not speaking of anything. This is slightly changing the subject from the cavalier to the, to the serious or from the cavalier to the wonderful. Um, but I want to thank you also last week for that haiku. That was amazing. And it made us think about translation in a really different way. You'd thrown out a challenge about translating backwards, um, a challenge which I entirely failed to take up this week. Um, but mm-hmm. I will try to because I think it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, I think, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to think through doing as I did not do. But, um, but I also loved how you made us listen to a poem that was just sound in one, I mean, mm-hmm. except well, for at least any of us who do not know Japanese, and and that was probably you know many of us listening, and and I it reminded me of how much poetry works just on sound. It doesn't have to make a lot of automatic rational sense. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you had sort of sent over. We we've been talking about poetry a lot more than I actually expected that we would in this in this um, podcast. But it's it's a great thing to talk about. And and um, you, you know, thinking about poetry this week was for me uh, bittersweet because we were supposed to have big events this week um, that are related to the Claremont Graduate University's 
um, uh, awarding of the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Awards annually. This was going to be our big um, ceremony. It was going to be last night. Tonight was going to be a night at the Huntington Library where the winners uh, would actually read. It's it's always very gala and it's it's, it's very moving and touching. And um, you sent me a poem um, from actually uh, our winner from her book, A Sand Book, a woman named Ariana Rains, um, which is actually about at least one place where I think information overload and the need for translation is acute, and that is in the emergency room. Um, you want me to read it? Because it's very cool. Yes, please. That's why I sent it to you, because okay, I thought, I, oh, holy moly, this is... No, this is you. This is Ariana Rains is a person you introduced me to. And she is our Yeah, she's a Tufts winner and she's she's huge right now. I mean, she's making big waves. She's she's doing amazing things. And when I came across this poem, I thought there is this is so appropriate and it's so appropriate because of uh everything it gets at uh related to what we're going through now but captures it in this one space so if you're far better at reciting anything that i could ever be unless it's in japanese because then you don't know if i said it correctly or not most likely this is true i'm um, really bad at reciting things in japanese um i think ariana's uh poetry is a really interesting poetry to read aloud as well um it's incredibly personal and she's an she gives the impression of being a fairly a fairly uncensored sensibility, which I think is interesting. I actually, she was on the radio yesterday on Michael Silverblatt's bookworm and she read her own poetry and it was, it was, it was extraordinary to hear her. And I will not, you know, this is a, this is a tall order because after hearing her read her own, I realized there's just no substitution for that, but this I will try because it is an amazing poem and it's from an amazing book of poetry. The one that won um, emergency room uh, by Ariana Raines. Toothless man with a blackened toe screaming. I hear my blood screaming through my veins, like wind on a Sierra, like electronic music. Elegant doctor in tight white coat, gray heels, bright pink complexion sways up to me. Where does it hurt, baby? The old man has caused a commotion, throwing off his coverings, accepting nobody's touch. But I'm enjoying the care. The doctors and nurses all flirting with each other. Me and my fucked up leg. I forgot how much I love human places. Courthouses and hospitals. Gas stations and rest stops in the wee hours. New York in the dark when somebody's crying into their phone wherever people are naked. Be nice, papi, you're gonna fall, says a nurse. You have to sit up in bed. Three beautiful medical professionals bending over him now. Papi, be nice. Why are you fighting? He's going to fall. Sientate. Human touch, human care, human beauty, divine mystery. Thank you, Lorianne. That ending is so beautiful. I know, I know. And actually, I have to say, I, I want to do the beautiful bits, but I, I want to talk about them forever. But what really was powerful for me as a former nurse was the actual way that people talk loudly and call people things like poppy when they're in the emergency room or when they're in distress. This is the way that nurses and um, LPNs and other technicians and, and almost everybody to my, in my memory, but doctors, you know, there's that kind of extraordinary familiarity, which I've never found to be automatically offensive. Um, A way of actually trying to cut through to get to the human part um, and to say, you know, but also shouting, like, don't do that. Don't pull on that. Don't get out of bed. Don't do this. Right. So there's this kind of bossiness and there's this kind of um, uh, uh, human reach and, and familiarity. And she got at that, right. The way it kind of ends up like being the, the focal point before we get to the beautiful ending. Um, Yeah, no, it, it it is. Um, you can see her attention being divided between all of the scenes going on in the emergency room, which is how it feels in an emergency room. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's like you, if your eyes are, are doing a scan, it's it's lots of action, lots of action, not so much action, lots of action. Right. And, and what it's like from the perspective of the person sitting in the emergency room, it, it was really clear. But she kind of plays with this idea of flirtation which doesn't entire and there's a little vulgarity in there and there's a little bit of language in there and and it ends so softly it ends in, in this way of talking about the beauty of this and this 
being how we care for each other and uh, what what is so important about knowing that when we're in trouble that we come together like this and uh, all of these things that we might in another context view as ugly or annoying or rude or inappropriate or whatever we would like in a space where it's actually around us healing each other and being better and and entrusting each other um, that it, then it's actually quite beautiful and well, and it's a mystery. It. It is. And what that's what I love. This is what to me connects poetry, religion, and in a weird way, and, you know, and, and sick, sickness, health are, are sort of spaces where healing goes on or does not. Um, this is the essence of humanity. It is that loud. It is that familiar. It can be that, um, that uh, profane. Um, and that to me is a divine mystery. And she's, a, she's, a, she's an extraordinarily spiritual person. And yet, a lot of her language, a lot of the work that she, a lot of what she's kind of introducing us to is a very earthy, the very earthiness that I think actually makes religion what it, what it is, the very earthiness that makes um, uh, sickness and, and, and healing what they are um, and makes poetry actually work. I mean, in my, in my real life, um, you know, you know, not just on, t- not on podcasts, I work on with John Donne, who, a 17th century poet who could not ever draw the line between profane and sacred love. He just, you know, and it wouldn't have made any sense to him to do that because he wouldn't have been able to get at that divine mystery without going through basically some aspect of the fucked up leg. And that would be, that was done. I mean, Dunn was actually constantly, he was absolutely obsessed with his own body and his own illnesses. Um, and that was his sense of also how he, could call out out of the darkness uh, to his Lord. So she, she gets this. And I, I find it, you know, I find like listening to her talk yesterday, um, she's incredibly emotionally transparent. And that's the other thing that happens. um, I think in this poem, it reminds us of the vulnerability of a person in a hospital, listening to a doctor having to hear bad or, or, or good news that is, you know, or anything or news that one has to change one's life or will have to now live without, um, their, their, their second kidney or like all the things that, you know, I'm trying to think of all the awful things that you could be told in a hospital, but all of those where you have to actually put on a new kind of mantle of trust. I think that that's, that's what she's getting at as well. Not just the distraction of it, but, you have to be able to see human care, human beauty, and divine mystery all in the same space so you can give it a chance to work. I think as she's capturing the divine, she's also capturing something that's like very pragmatic. So for for instance, I can't tell which clinician is which in this setting. And I think from the point of view of a patient in an ER, anybody is a human trying to help you and not necessarily a nurse versus a physician versus a a respiratory therapist versus a physical, like everybody yeah. is there yeah. on the same team trying to make you better. And yep. she doesn't really distinguish who's who in, in any of these. I mean, we have our assumptions of who might be talking to, and I think maybe one time she points that out, but generally speaking, there's a team of people who are coming to help you and, and they have these very human qualities to them and you trust them. You have to trust them that they're going to help you. One of the things that strikes me about this is that they're all beautiful in this poem. They're all, mm-hmm. all of these, all the people that come to help have, you know, have this extraordinary beauty to her. Either they're beautifully dressed, they're actually kind of sexy. Um, you know, there's, you know, they, they have, they're attractive. Um, and they're, and in that sense, you know, and then the, the three beautiful health professionals at the end. And in that sense, it's kind of like, you know, um, the whole, you know, the idea of angels themselves, you know, both beautiful and terrible um, and necessary. And, mm, um, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I, I think she is trying to get at that angelic nature, which is a lovely play, because I think a lot of her wordplay happens off the page, right? So I think it's, I'd like, I think of it as a wordplay where nurses and, 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 and the people on these teams are, were traditionally known as angels of mercy, right? They were, you know, and, and she's actually pulled away from that. She doesn't have to say it directly. She's implying that, and it's our job to sort of make up that space. And and she's, you know, and I find this particularly. It was, I'm so glad that you sent this today because I I woke I woke up this morning and read the paper, and I was immediately furious at someone I never get furious at, and that's David Brooks, 
He, you know, mm-hmm. he writes op-eds for the New York Times and, mm-hmm. and he's, and he's a kind of conservative that writes for the New York Times, which means not very really, but you know, and he's a, he, I think of him as a very humane man. And I don't know if you've seen this or not. Um, but he wrote today that the title of it was, you know, no more coddling or something like that. And, and I clicked on to my great dismay because what it was about was, um, and, and I know you're going to be as reliably angry as I am when I tell this to you. So, um, it's an article about how in a world where everybody's coddled now and, and, and grades are inflated for, and he points this out, English majors, there's one place where there's no coddling and that is medical training. In medical training, the grades are not inflated. You're not allowed to sleep. And there was a crazy movement a few years ago that thought that they should get more humanist training. But no, now we see, now that we're in the trenches, what they need is to be, you know, is to be like, you know, people who are training for the medical fields need to go without sleep. They need to be constantly put up against sort of the the, the demands of the, the superhuman demands of a job, which takes people, um, which which requires people to be hard and tough. And it was as if, like in one op-ed piece. You know, he was actually saying the opposite of the things that that you and I talk about all the time, about the need for these things to be tempered with each other, for doctors to be, you know, not just superhuman, but, 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 um, uh, human, human. And for us to recognize the humanity in every healthcare professional, as well as in the people that they're treating, and that this should be part of that training. And here he was basically saying some of the worst aspects, at least to my mind, you know, the sort of the enforced 72 hours without getting to sleep and things, that this was actually the right thing to have been doing all along. Because when the crisis hits, we need people who who basically work without stopping to think about those things, to think yeah, about- Yeah, Lorian, you, you know I'm going to agree with you on this one. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I mean, what, I want, but what, I want no, somebody else to be mad with me, you know? No, I am. I'm, I'm completely- Well, he, he's really being cavalier. I mean, he's really he's really Damn, making a claim right to which he should that. not he should not be making a claim to. Um, what does he know about this? Where he has the experience? I I will say that in addition to there being a large literature on this, um, we've had experience in in medical training. Like we haven't understood. I, I I've taught medical students. You've you've been in the emergency rooms. The most important thing is healing and humanity. And you can be a robotic scientist, but then you're not a physician. You're not a nurse. You're you're a robot. It's a well, very different thing. Absolutely. You were talking about humanity. You know, we've talked about humanity and self-doubt actually being a really part, like a huge part of how we need to approach these kinds of problems, right? These kinds of these kinds of um, challenges. And it seemed to me that he was saying, if, you, you, "Go read it." I might have just been in a bad mood this morning, but you know, yeah, um, no, no, I'm in a bad mood. Yeah, it's funny because he, you know, he has a student at Pitzer College. I always wanted to meet him when he came onto campus and, you know, I never got a chance to because I wanted yeah, to Yeah, he's something. spoken at our school before, hasn't he? Yeah, and I wanted to do something yeah. really, really obnoxious, I mean, to, now that I think about it, absolutely condescending to say, you know, for a conservative thinker, I really like you. Um, and so I didn't even, you know, it was a ter- it's terrible, but, um, you know, I feel like yeah, writing, I wanted to write back, but I don't want to become one of those people that writes, uh, you know, back to the op-ed page. I will have to say that the reaction to his piece, which was, you know, nobody picked up on the thing I picked up on. Nobody got mad about the crack about the English majors, you know, how they live in a coddled world, you know, but it did seem to me like he was trying to say, in this, you know, in this great boot camp called, you know, medical training and scientific knowledge, you know, where, where you, you're not allowed to be wrong, you know, they drill out of you a kind of self-doubt or humility that might actually, you know, trip you up in some way. And, 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 and I see it as the, as the, as the entree to, I see it as the entree to a lot of things, but I wonder if it's also an entree to actually introducing our guests. I was going to say, this is a perfect time because we have two guests that can speak specifically to, in within medical training, the, the different components of going through to make both this combo of somebody that is superhuman, who is able to be the soldier and be serious and amazing and dependable and entrustable, and the person who has the soft heart, who has the care, the touch, and is going to be on your team to help you get better. And so it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Laren Tan from... 
Loma Linda University, where he's Associate Professor of Medicine, the Chief in the Department of Medicine, Center for Innovation and Promotions, uh, part of the Loma Linda University Health Faculty Medical Group, the Director of Creative Innovations, Communication and Strategic Branding. Uh, he is a pulmonologist with a lot of different titles, a lot of different research and training experience. He is somebody who works in lung health and specifically has also worked in cytokines and the relationship to things like asthma and COPD. So clearly really very relevant. And he is on the front lines working in the ICU, working in the hospital to help people who are going through this this pandemic right now. And our other guest today is Abdullah Ali Smail, who is a current PhD student, PhD student in the School of Educational Studies at CGU. But he is also the program director and assistant professor for a Master of Science in Respiratory Care and Polysomnography certificate at Loma Linda University, where he is also the director of clinical education for the entry-level bachelor's in respiratory care. He is a respiratory therapist. He is a, a, a leader in the world of respiratory uh, therapy. He was recently awarded an honorary credential as a fellow for the American College of Chest Physicians. Um, and he is working on some really, really cool research for his dissertation, which I won't share too much because I know um, he's in the middle of it, but it's related to how people learn while they're in the middle of an emergency. So I'm curious to know, given that we have two guests with extensive training in training future clinicians, on what their opinions are of hearing something or reading something that states, you know, it, it, we really need to create people who are who are more rigid and, and soldier and superhero-like rather than than the soft stuff, and, and, we don't, and we don't really want to create those that have this kind of caring, touchy side to them. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to either Dr. Tan or to, to Abdullah, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear what your experience has to say. Well, I, I think in, in hearing what, what Laurie did um, and, and also what was, was written, um, it's very unfortunate because what we're seeing is that there is a polarity in the way that that physicians view or the medical community views the, the rigorous training um, of the old world. There were those that used to train and, and work in the hospital seven days straight and maybe even got a day off. Um, and now they're actually work duty restrictions. And, and why is that? Because we've got sufficient data to show that when you work continuously, uh, it's hazardous to your health and it's also hazardous to the type of care you're actually giving to your patients. Um, we've seen now also just on reports or surveys that are out that at least a little bit more than 50% of physicians have exhibited some form of symptoms associated with burnout, um, whether that be emotional exhaustion, uh, depersonalization or detachment, um, and which really puts them in a very dark spot or dark place to be able to provide the care that is necessary um, from, the, from the most vulnerable that actually need the care. I would think the impact on decision making would be really would this would be particularly acute under these circumstances. The need to make decisions when burnt out must be virtually impossible. Absolutely, it can be extremely problematic, um, especially when you have no sense of clarity, um, especially lack of sleep. Mm. I agree, and and and, and, I, and I can speak from just a, a clinical education standpoint how uh, because they. Uh, I, uh, I oversee students in clinic, and as a respiratory therapist, we usually work, uh, you know, three twelves. So this is kind of like our full time, three twelve hours a week. Uh, if someone signs up for a full time, they go to like four or five uh, five days a week. Uh, but it's a lot, and and with my students, to, uh, for them to go and rotate in clinic, I kind of limit them to a maximum of like three twelve hours a week because I do also worry about their. Uh, their wholeness, right? Uh, the, the burnout, how is that going to affect them, not just on the decision-making, but also on their uh, studies uh, from a didactic standpoint. So I'm, I'm curious because here we've got the, in, in essence, what we would call an interprofessional team. We have a, a physician, a respiratory therapist, and a nurse, and then I'm- We the all walk into who, a bar. <laughs> yeah, we all walk. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who needs to stand in the corner in case I've needed to do something else. I'm, I'm the not very useful person on the team. But if we oh, have sure. here a, an interprofessional team uh, and burnout is going to affect how that team works, um, I'm curious how everybody learns to really trust each other and how you play with the fluidity 
in your both training and in the actual emergency setting of different people needing to take on different roles given the amount of, of stimuli you need to respond to. So when you're in an ICU, it's, it's, there's a lot going on, especially if somebody is in distress. So how do you all figure out who does what and how to trust each other to do their thing and perform at the best of their capacity? That's such a great question. And I actually really want to hear from Abdullah and Laren because as a nurse, I was, and I was a nurse back in the, in the bad old days. Um, and so I'm curious how doctors develop and, and, and other members of the team, how, how respiratory therapists, how people who come in with specific and very important jobs to do, how they actually think about the nurse who's, who's there in a, in a possibly a different capacity, having been with that patient or different patients all day long. Where is the, you know, where is the view of the team in that regard? Great question. And that, 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 that's kind of like my, uh, my dissertation, my dissertation topic. Oh, good. Uh, but but usually in uh, in clinics and especially when I try to kind of prep my uh, uh, my students my respiratory therapy students as they go in uh, there's kind of like a motto that we go by in, in in critical situations in terms of trustability right how how do we how do we develop that if you look at the personalities of the healthcare providers we kind of go by lead follow or get out of my way so I <laughs> think lead or you can follow someone or step out of the way because you might break that entrustability uh, uh, of the teamwork. I love the notion of entrustability. I mean, because, you know, you have to earn it often on the fly. I mean, you know, I can think of situations in which I was there and had been on that floor for, 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 for forever and had been with this person for forever. And then new people come in the room and they have things to do. I have things to tell them. Um, and everybody has a different area of expertise and charge at that point. And at some point, there's this kind of great choreography that goes on where we have to figure that out within, you know, within a minute. And, um, how, you know, so there has to be something at the, at the bottom of all of it. I don't know if it's the institution that can foster it. Um, it's the sense of the way that, that the different jobs have been structured. Um, right. Absolutely. Um, Lorianne, because the culture, I will say, um, is starting to also change within the medical community. There has been a big push to always continue to remember to put that patient, that patient to be the center. And and so, you know, um, at various different institutions, especially at Loma Linda 2, we've started to do patient-centered rounds. Um, and, and that is essentially, you know, you had to distill it down to one thing. It's really getting us all together to be able to communicate to the best of our ability to provide the best care that we can. Um, and I think, you know, you can probably attest to this. Uh, I say that historically um, there would be different segments, like someone like what you were mentioning would come by, perhaps provide some information and then go off. And then uh, the bedside nurse would be left to have to translate that or convey that information to the next party that comes along. Um, and so what we've tried to do now is really get all team members together involved at one point and actually discuss about that patient. You know, what, what is the physical needs? What may be the spiritual needs? Um, what are the medical needs? And then what are the nursing needs? What are the respiratory care needs? And, and all together come up with a formulated plan so we're all on the same page to be able to provide the best care that we can. And I think that also minimizes the, the stress. It minimizes the um, moments of irritation that could be, you know, why am I having to repeat myself multiple times that, contrib that can contribute to uh, dissatisfaction at work leading to burnout. So I think the, this is at least one aspect that, that we've really tried to work on in the intensive care unit in a high stress area to alleviate any miscommunication that could happen. Oh, brave new world. Oh, brave new world. I, I actually was in the last generation of people before the, the concept of the team um, became, I think, really it kind of emerged from, from, uh, from the various kind of schools where people were learning and became part of the way this works. And it sounds, it sounds so, I mean, dare I say, it sounds so much more humane um, and, I, I, and, and collaborative, I agree, and that's and, and, and right now, as uh, as Dr. Tan mentioned in the medical kind of community, by just walking into the unit right now, uh, all of the team members uh, we are basically being trained on on two main uh, kind of concepts. One is what we call like team steps, right? This is part of the training that all of us kind of go through. 
to increase trusting each other so we can communicate way much better, reduce stress, uh, uh, put the focus on the patient. Uh, uh, in addition to team steps, we also use what's called like an, an S-bar, a, a part of a method of communication where we put the patient first. What, what is the situation? What is the background? Uh, what is the assessment? What is your recommendation? Like from a nurse to a respiratory therapist. Uh, that way the message uh, conveyed uh, with a focus on, on, on patient uh, as well as uh, increases the trust uh, between between healthcare providers. In part, this speaks back to the ways in which we disagree with the op-ed in that the reason why you need the inflated English grade is because you need to be able to think critically and cooperatively and outside of the box and pay attention to things that might not necessarily be in your your process model of, of what your specific thing that you were supposed to do beforehand was. And I think that's where he really missed the boat here, is that interprofessionalism requires that kind of liberal arts and humanities training to be able to be effectively executed. I think without that, then you lack the idea of understanding what does it mean to put a patient first? That's the bigger question. Like patient first means what? Or patient-centered means what? A version of a kind of empathy, I would think, and it makes me think, the you know, related to this, actually, we had related questions, Annie, this is amazing. Um, I'm wondering if Loma Linda is in some sense singular in this because of its attention to spiritual needs. I don't know that I'd hear every medical team talking about a patient's spiritual needs, and those can be defined very generally, right? It could be the need for a poem, not for scripture or for, um, uh, you know, some sort of uh, communion. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, do you think that that actually has an impact on the way you think about decision-making as a group? Because that's part of the, part of the decision-making takes account of spiritual and humane needs like that. I, I, I will attest to that, that, um, you know, Loma Linda being based, its mission statement and the foundation is, is based on a Christian background. It is based on Christ. And, and so we realize that a lot of things really kind of circle around the spiritual wellness of a patient, regardless whether or not they may be of the Christian uh, background or Christian faith. But we, but we embrace the fact that spiritualism is very important in, in healing, in the healing process. And now more than ever, uh, during a pandemic where fear and anxiety is just through the roof, I, I think uh, people are looking to a higher power. And so being able to be able to provide another aspect that that medicine or any pill or, or any therapy uh, that you that you try to give somebody isn't going to be able to meet that need uh, is important to be able to provide that that other layer, that spiritual layer. Oh, wow. You know, because I worked in a university hospital and to, you know, to us, the higher power was the attending physician. Uh, so, you know, it looks to me like the hierarchy has been, been switched around a little bit, you know, in this kind of incredible uh, equality of opinion and decision making and a sense that some of it is um, just beyond the grasp of, of, the, of the human hand and heart and, and mind and, and is in some sense given up to something a little bit more ineffable. And, and I think that definition has expanded in a lot of different ways so that it did start off with how do you get the doctor, the nurse, and the, the therapist all together to be patient-centered. And now we're like, okay, what about, what about the social worker? What about the chaplain? What about the family members? I came in mm-hmm. in the era where I was, I was called, I think, kind of diminutively a basic scientist. Um, it, it didn't mean the same thing as, as what basic means colloquially now. Uh, but the basic scientist is the person that, that teaches the first part of the, the curriculum in whatever kind of health sciences curriculum someone's going through. And that is, what is the biology someone needs to know? What, what is the chemistry someone needs to know? And I remember when we were talking about how we could get involved with interprofessional education, uh, people were saying, well, let's, let's encourage them to be good people in our classes. And I, I got angry, like you might have been angry when you first read the, the op-ed this morning. And I said, what are you talking? No, we, we have to teach them how to think like scientists. Like we have to give them the, the capacity to have a network of scientists so that when something new comes out, they can call their virologist colleague and understand what, uh, what, what the implications are for a new finding from a new study. Of course, people have some, they can do some of this on their own, but interprofessional is really like taking 
the researcher, with the clinician, with the family, with the religion, with, because in, from a transdisciplinary way of looking at it, a patient is a complex situation. And so yes. any way that we divide that up is not going to do justice to the patient sitting there. You have to look at it in a very holistic way. That, that makes me want to ask Abdullah something, actually. What is it like to be a student in one setting? I mean, I guess we could be, you know, we could say the kind of thing that we always say to sound, you know, wonderful and say, well, we're always learning. But let me, I mean, formally, you're actually a student in one setting. And in another setting, you are a person who brings a great deal of expertise and knowledge that, um, that can be applied to the situation. Do you feel like, how, how is that relationship between being um, both in a program as a student and basically part of a medical team? How's that work for you? Well, being a student at, at CGU, first thing is we have to carry the flame, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or you're not allowed yeah, on this podcast. Use. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but basically being uh, or going through through a CGU program, uh, as a student uh, in, in the education program, and, and, and I have, since I have a passion for research, uh, CGU, has kind of shaped my, uh, or kind of skilled my, uh, improved my research skill, uh, skills and interpretation. So being in the medical field right now and being involved with the research, as you know, this this time there's a lot of studies coming out with uh, with COVID, and and if we kind of misinterpret these studies, we might drive, or maybe we might come up with the wrong conclusion, which might drive not a good policy per se. Uh, or a recommendation or a decision. So uh, being a student, I think I think uh, knowing how to and how to use research skills to put them at the bedside uh, played a major role. Wow. That's really that's 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 interesting to me because you raised something that I know is something I'd, I, that Andy and I really want to hear from, from both of you about, which is what do you do with incomplete or developing knowledge, right? You were talking about like there's studies, but these studies are all, you know, we don't have the final word on this. We're, we're just starting to deal with COVID. I mean, we've, we've, it has precursors and, and, but every day I hear a different person attempting to make to put a line under some kind of understanding so that we can feel comfortable and move on. And, you know, if, you know, every graduate student knows, I can still remember it and I haven't been a graduate student for eons that it never feels like the work is finished and there's always something else to learn. And just about the time you think you've got your hands grasped, I mean, this could be, this can be John Donne's poetry or it can be um, something you're doing in the school of education and, 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 and working on research on the way people become, you know, entrustable in medical settings, whatever it is, you actually know that you're in a constantly developing situation. You're never going to be able to say you're done. You've learned all that there is to be learned, but people in complex medical crises or even simple medical crises don't want someone to sit and kind of go well on the other hand in front of them, right? It's one of the most irritating things in the world. It's the same thing that people (laughs) tell you about undergraduate teaching. Undergraduates don't want people to go, well, you could say that Shakespeare means this, but you could also say that he means this. And actually we can deconstruct all of this and it doesn't count anyway, which I think is actually what Mr. Brooks is saying about the the, the wishy-washiness that, as he sees it, of, of for example, the English degree. Um, but don't let me go there again. Um, what I'm really interested to hear from both Abdullah and Laren is, you know, how does one work in a world where you know the science isn't finished, where you know that the medical approach is ne- is is not is not completed, um, but give people a sense of security and a kind of hope in what comes next, uh, so that you have that. Th- this is, I think, maybe you know, patient to medical person and trustability. I hope I I answered that. I mean, that's a dumb sounding question, but because it went on forever, but it. You know, how is it that one works in such a, you know, in such uncertain times, you can't tell people exactly how this is going to end? Absolutely, Lorianne. I I think if anything else, um, now more than ever, as clinicians and providers, um, with hope comes great responsibility. And I think that that really pushes it out to media. It pushes it out to our leaderships, um, to those that are in great positions and also those that are in the medical field. I think we need to swallow the humility pill in saying that, you know, if we don't know, we really don't know. But 
there is a signal that is showing that this could potentially benefit, you know, whatever that therapy actually is. But we are continually studying the effects. And I think we need to be very transparent with that uh, to the community and to our public. Because, you know, as you've probably read also, and, and we've seen that after media press releases on on potential treatments, um, I think there's a lot of, um, we could say, community members out there that will end up taking things into their own hand and, and try to, to prophylactically take various different treatments and end up ultimately causing harm and if not, even their lives. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the responsibility comes in us being transparent and also doing the best of our ability and telling our patients that that. Um, we're still in the process. We're still working it out. But in the meantime, there are concrete things that we can do, like the preventative piece, especially when it came to COVID, right? Like social distancing and making sure we practice uh, appropriate hygiene. That, you know, right. The, the, the steps you take while you're still waiting, while we all await more definitive answers. And, and I think, Abdullah, you had sent me this great article um, that was talking about even the use of, of modeling that we're using beyond what a model is supposed to be, which we talked about a little bit in, in previous episodes. Um, and I just wanted to read uh, a statement from it. I thought it summed up entirely what Dr. Tan just said beautifully, as that the appearance of certainty is seductive when the world is desperate to know what lies ahead. And I'm curious on what you are both seeing in the hospital right now of how you handle that with your peers and with your patients as they come in? Are more people saying, I don't care, I want the clinical trial now? Do you see people who have been cavalier on their own and who are taking medications that might actually be dangerous in this situation? Are you finding most people are not necessarily following this as much as I've been religiously following this? Uh, wh where are you seeing this on the ground? It's, it's when we see these uh, this great art article that I shared with you, I think it kind of like, it gives us a different point of view and perspective of how uh, it's easy to misinterpret data, right? When, when we look at models, sometimes we have to kind of take a step back and, and uh, from a research standpoint to interpret how these studies are uh, or should be interpreted. There's always multiple sides of things that, in terms of digging into the data, understanding the data, uh, so that way we can bring the patient or, or share that with the public and reduce, uh, reduce fear. And just a quick note, that was from an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine entitled Caution Warranted, Using the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation Model for Predicting the Course of the COVID-19 Pandemic. So um, just in case wow. you want to that yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it definitely really doesn't nice sound topic. like an English department um, um, piece. Um. <laughs> There's a colon in the title, though. There's a colon. Oh, there you in the go. Title. It's got punctuation. It's, it's got punctuation. Dr. Tam, what does it look like on, on the ground? You know, it, it's going to vary um, depending on the day, and and of course, I, I I do not want to 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 put out there that we're we're definitely through this, um, especially since you know I've got colleagues and friends in New York that are still battling this. Um, but within California and where our region is actually uh, is at, which is in the San Bernardino County area, um, we haven't you know. It is an absolute blessing that we have not had the surge that uh, New York and perhaps even uh, Seattle actually saw. So it's great, you know. Um, we we do expect at least a little a little bit of our numbers to tick up just a little bit, but but nothing in the degree that of which was predicted. Um, and and so it's it's a sense of perhaps a little bit of calming of the storm and, and light at the end of the tunnel. But what we've been telling our residents and, and also those around us that, you know, we got to finish strong. So we have to keep doing what we need to do to be able to make sure that um, the disease stays at where it is. And if not, build up herd immunity some way, one way or, the or another. Um, I, I did want to touch base a little bit on something, though, and, and that is the vulnerability of healthcare providers mm -hmm. um, through this, that, that even though that we're seeing the um, the the flattening of the curve. And I know no one stated that, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of noise that are slowly that we're looking for that. Um, but the healthcare, but the healthcare providers, those that are on our front line, I think are still more than ever still vulnerable. And, and 
And what do I mean by vulnerability? It's, you know, we're, we're vulnerable to actually getting COVID ourselves. We're vulnerable in the sense of that we're fearful that we may actually give it to now our patients and maybe even our own family and loved ones. Uh, so much so that we're even isolated, not necessarily just from the hospital, even at home. And so I, I think that from a humanity standpoint, I think the emotional ramifications of this is is going to go even beyond the flattening of the curve. And it's something that we're going to have to be very mindful of moving forward. That's very moving to me. Um, one of the things I, I was thinking that I wanted to ask you both, you know, was what it's like to come home and feel like you have to pr protect your family from yourself in a certain kind of way. I mean, you know, and part of me just has this kind of um, insatiable curiosity, like, do you take your shoes off in the garage? Do you put, you know, like the kinds of things that I wonder if people do, but also the sense that, you know, you can't just run in and get a hug and, you know, you have to, you also have to take off the day when you come in because you've also been in very tense and difficult situations. And how much can you protect your family, not just from you, but in terms of just from, the, you know, what you might be exposed to, but from the kind of day that you've had? or night shift for that matter? For me, emotionally, it has never turned off um, since being in the ICU on, on the fear of giving it to my kids or my wife and then giving it, and then from them spreading over to my parents who are more elderly. Uh, and, it, and it's just, it's like, even though that I am trying to do the best that I can in practicing the best hygiene that I possibly can. When I get home, it is the same thing. You know, I'm isolated to a specific room. I can't go out to the kitchen. Um, we've resorted to toe touches. That's as close as I can get with, with, our, with our three kids. Um, so I, I have found it to be very emotionally taxing, but I also appreciate um, what, how much everybody is willing to do and wanting to do to be able to to do their part. Uh, and so, you know, although it's tough, I, I think people are willing to do what it needs, what needs to be done. So this way we can continue on with our lives. Abdullah, are you also in clinical setting these days? Yeah, right now, well, right now I'm not in clinical settings uh, since uh, most of my students are, uh, are not going to the, to the clinical sites. So we've been doing a lot of virtual stuff uh, lately. But just to kind of go off with, with Dr. Tan, as just speaking from a respiratory therapist standpoint, uh, during during this time or in previous times, like anytime when when we walk into a patient room, especially as a respiratory therapist, we are the one who give the patient the breathing treatment, right? We are the one who walks into the patient room. Uh, it could be like COVID or even like a TB patient. So as we give these, you know, aerosolized uh, medications. Uh, we have also to kind of protect uh, ourselves. So even when I used to go to clinic and then come back home, there's that set of procedures that I also have to, to consider, um, uh, such as, you know, I have dedicated uh, uh, shoes for, for a clinic. You know, I, I would jump into the shower immediately just to kind of take the, uh, the preventative steps. Of, I know a lot of my colleagues who would basically change in the, uh, or, they would basically change their, their shoes in the parking garage before they even get into their car. So, uh, so yeah, so basically these guys right now, uh, my colleagues at, at the bedside, you know, they are the heroes, uh, especially during this time. And, and we really appreciate what they do. I almost feel like this is where poetry again would be really poignant, where you have the image that was brought in of what it looks like from a patient seeing this going on around them, but just hearing the descriptions of what it's like going home and going in the opposite direction is so moving to hear of how humanizing and what it must be like for our healthcare professionals. Yes. I was, you know, I wonder what you both think about, um, about these evening, the evening uh, cheering and clapping um, that, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of a, that'd be, really, be in some ways kind of hard to, achieve out here because all of our houses are separate from each other. But in a place like New York, um, occasionally those, those, um, those newscasts that show me that have brought me to tears. Um, and I think a lot about how much you must know or feel the appreciation that people have for your work 
because sometimes that doesn't come through in the actual tense situation of a medical encounter. Uh, people are let's let us just say that most people are not at their best uh, when they come into the emergency room, um, and even those who are who are at their very best are are not doing very well. Um, so I'm I'm I wonder about understanding how one gets an intrinsic understanding of the gratitude that patients have that goes beyond, you know, somebody, you know, the family thanking you or somebody, you know, we used to be just inundated with flowers and candy, um, which was wonderful, but, but, you know, do you, do you take that on? Can you feel that um, either of you, uh, both of you? The, this in this era, in this current climate, it's, it's very, very difficult to um, sense the gratitude and the thanks from patients, uh, from patients' family. Not, not to say that they're not. It is just that we've got a no visitor policy, so much so that uh, no visitors are able to visit any of the patients um, inside the hospital, unless you know there there are specific special cases where where we would run through our command center in order to have maybe one family member come in in fear of that family member then uh, becoming infected with COVID or spreading COVID to other patients and also taking it outside of the hospital. So it's, that's tough. That's a, that's a very tough aspect. Um, But what I have seen and also, which brings me great joy is to be able to see um, medical teams actually cheer and give gratitude to our, our staff members who are cleaning uh, the rooms, Mm -hmm. who are actually cleaning the hallways I mean, these these are the little guys that we don't really think of that are really putting their lives on the line, too, uh, and their families also, just so this way we make sure that the next patient come in and has a clean room, just to make sure that our healthcare providers have a clean area to actually work with. And and these acts of compassion and kindness, I think are the, I think are the things that really media should be really highlighting the goodness in humanity. You know, we realize there's a dark side that's going on right now, but we need to see that light. And so... Uh, it always brings me great joy when I see that. Oh, I love the, I love knowing that. I love knowing that that actually happens. You raise something that I think is the, one of the most powerfully um, difficult aspects of this uh, of this particular illness, and it actually, in some sense, has to be placed against the uh, culture that uh, that Ariana is actually, uh, in some sense, highlighting in her poem. Um, that there isn't a lot, there isn't interaction. People are very much alone. Um, Patients can end up, you know, this, I mean, literally it's, it's isolation and you can't, you know, people are covered up. You can't always see part of their face. Um, that, that to me was always heartbreaking about doing isolation patients when I, I mean, it was years ago, but the idea that there was so much between me and the patient and um, the very best of, of medical training or nursing training was always about um, providing a kind of, you know, a, a straight look in the eye, a hand on the arm. Um, how awful it is to realize that those things can't always be um, anything but sort of signaled that can't actually always be accomplished. I would, I would also, I would kind of like, uh, like to jump in in here. Uh, I'm not sure if you, if some of you have been following uh, some of the great healthcare providers uh, around the nation, some of them, what they did to overcome this difficulty, right. In terms of uh, that, uh, that, that connection between the provider and the patient where some of them went all the way to printing their own picture and then basically posting it on top of their PPE so that way the patient can see who they really are, they can see their face and a little bit of information about themselves. This is, let's say, you know, this is Dr. So-and-so, uh, this is my name, this is my picture, uh, which I think is it's kind of moving in, in a sense. I did not know that. Way. I'm so glad I found that out. Um, yeah, that's really yes, moving. we need to know who it is that it, we need to know the other human being in the room. Exactly. Yeah, because, because communication, uh, if, if I'm walking into the, into, into the room and I'm going to be spending 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes with you uh, doing a vent check or a ventilator check or uh, giving you a breathing treatment uh, during this whole time, you don't want to be just looking at <laughs> uh, someone just wearing a suit or just a PPE and you don't know who they are. All you see is just their eyes and you don't see any, uh, any facial expressions per se. Uh, so uh, this is, I, I think, where innovation, some, some healthcare providers are trying to kind of be innovative to, uh, to reach out to the patient, to go that extra mile uh, 
to establish that connection. And, and they understand reduce that. Fear, increase hope. And they understand that because they have a, a sense of what is needed beyond what what Andy might have uh, called like the strictly basically scientific, right? That you've got to, that, you know, the cruelest thing about communicable disease is that it divides people from each other and, and, and that this is a way of trying to make that connection, re, re, retake that connection. Whereas a, you know, a very sort of flat kind of scientific approach to this would be to say, I need to cover up because that's what's safe. Um, and that's what I need to do. And that, that can be efficient and that can be accurate, but it isn't giving, it isn't giving the full dimension of care. And I, I think I, I want to just say our guests have been so generous in their time and their their personalized stories. Are you going to make? Um, are you are you trying to are you trying to tell them goodbye when I want to talk to them for another three or four hours? I, guess, <laughs> I don't. This is a this I is an all day podcast, guys. Thinking, this is an all day podcast, and and Laurieann, I I think that we need to have them over for a virtual happy hour at some point. We absolutely so do. We I'm going to miss talking to back. you both. And, and I do want to say that this is not the last the CGU community will be hearing from Dr. Tan and Abdullah. We are actually fortunate enough to be having them back for a webinar on April 27th and more details to follow where they will be taking questions from our CGU community. So we have more chances to talk to them about something like where do you take your shoes off when you come home to the uh, the deeper questions of, of how do you find solace uh, before, before you start your workday every day. So um, with that, I'd like to thank both of our guests. This has oh, been a real treat so for me. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank, thank you, you so Robin. much. Thank you, Robin. Yes, thank you for having us here. And, and we look forward to, to chatting with you both again soon on, on April 27th. Looking forward to that, to carry the flame along. Let's carry the flame forward. Thank you, thank you both so much. That's wonderful. Thank you. Oh, Andy, I can't believe we have to stop. This isn't any fun at all. I, I, I was, we're just I, getting no, into it. No, it was so fun. It was and, so and fun, fun Even though it was, it was hard conversation. It was really, it was about hard, um, sad, powerful things. And yet, I mean, this is the, the you know, the, in a way it was, con you know, these, these are, these are two such special people, you know. I, I, I was, I was so encouraged. I me mean, too. And if like, I ever get sick, I want to go to Loma Linda. I'm I'm here. I'm worrying about the the percentage of of rubbing alcohol I'm using on my groceries when they come in, and then they you know you this don't is have real. To. Like I know, I know. It's, this is this is me taking it to the nth degree. Um, but it is it is so beautiful to hear this. It's just so beautiful to hear uh, the stories of people who um, can bring it back to what the human connection is about, given the times that we're living in. And uh, so, these are the people I would want taking care of my yes. my family, my friends. Um, but, but hopefully not right now. Um, you know, these are, that's, that's the, that's the other tragedy, right? These wonderful, humane, brilliant people. And actually we never really want to see them in the, yes, in the capacity for which we, we don't want to actually be that patient if we can help it. So it's good that they're going to be, thankfully, yes, thank but thankfully they're waiting there. Yeah, they are. We'll get, to, we'll get to, we'll get to meet, we'll get to know them even better at this webinar. That's, that's fantastic. So you're, you're, yeah. I see the time it's, it's, it really did fly by. Um, do we uh -huh. have any, um, hints about next week's, uh, so we have, as the scheduling is going next week is still a surprise guest. And in two weeks, I, I, we do know who it's going to be. Um, so we're going to keep you, keep you, uh, waiting and, and interested and you will hear more as, as we know more, but we have no dearth of interesting topics and interesting guests to be, to be bringing. We do not, show. we do not. And this year, this week's challenge, which I'm assuming that nobody's taking, cause I didn't even take it last week, but again, we throw it out there. Uh, people in the CGU community know how to reach us. Um, our challenge is to read op-ed pieces, two pieces um, between now and then, um, watching people try to make that translation between what's happening in this in this medical this world of medical crisis, and and connect it to everything from you know how people are trained or whether they should have ever gotten an English degree or whether or not we should be reopening say restaurants and things. I mean. I suspect a lot of us are news hounds, but sometimes I think this is the time people kind of skip the op-ed page. Um, so, and if not, um, that would be my challenge. Or maybe maybe my challenge is to say, read it and try not to get mad. Um, that would be the challenge that I failed today. 
So I love that challenge. Andy, I also I also want to answer the challenge that you posited last time from John Prine, uh, yes. which had me thinking. So I did listen to it was, it was Angel from Montgomery. So yeah. Is that what you had? Yeah. Beautiful song, but but the thing that really got me because then I went down my rabbit hole is I found Hello in there. <gasps> that's which, a fantastic. It's so good and it's so relevant right now that I've played what? it so many times in the past week. Well, you know um, the story behind it, right? He was a No, he, what's the story behind it? A mail carrier. And he like that's one of the jobs he did to try to, you know, cuz you know, he he wasn't making a gazillion dollars off of his music. He was a mail carrier and sometimes you don't know that a person is in distress in their home until you realize that their mail is piling up outside the door. And this was actually, this has been, you know, he's used this example to talk about why he writes his songs. And people have talked about John Prine as if one of the things that John Prine did from the time that he was a young man was, was to be able to actually sing very poignantly and acutely about people who are elderly or not well, even when he was young and not, you know, and, and perfectly healthy. And it's because he remembers you'd see the mail pile up and he thought someone needs to call through the door and see if the person inside is okay. Yeah. That's, that's a powerful, I mean, the song is powerful. Yeah, it is. The song is powerful. It's amazing. I'm so glad you took the challenge. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. That was a great challenge. And I like your challenge that you're positing. We, so for, for all of the, the people out there who are listening, who, might now go beyond the the number of our immediate friends and family, Lorianne. Uh, we do have a Twitter feed we're starting at the CGU Transdisciplinary Studies page, which is wow. at CGU TNDY, where we want to we want you to post your challenge and what you found. So, right. uh, or tell us what you, you go, think, or yeah, or tell us what you think. We we want to hear your thoughts on the show, especially if you like it. Yes, there's no shortage of things coming your way. I'm having a great time doing this with you. I love connecting with you. I love doing this podcast. Today was called Putting on Airs, and I think we didn't have a single person do that. No, but we were able to talk about it in a way that made it very, very grounded, which which is another thing that is good to do every once in a while when you when you realize that the air can be a place where it, it can separate people as well. That's right. So and you are anything but cavalier. That, thank you. That's only for people I'm mad at and I'm having a, a lover spat with. That's it for today. I think it's time to say goodbye. Thank you very much. And thank you so much to our guests. Thank you for joining us for Sharing Air, where we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation.